0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. On today's podcast, we're putting the spotlight on our fixed income team made up of portfolio manager Jeff Moore and quantitative analyst Stacey Ware, who sat down with host Catherine Black. Jeff and Stacy speak about the state of the fixed-income market, the inflation and Fed storyline, and what it all means for fixed-income investors going forward. Jeff says they believe inflation has peaked, and they expect a stationary state for inflation to get around sub-4 by Christmas. If this is the case, this is a particularly good setup for bonds and the bond market, Jeff adds. He says from a quarter-to-quarter point of view, we're on pace for a return greater than 10% within the fixed income market. Stacey, who is new to the team, explains her role. She is actively involved in the day-to-day management of the portfolios, and she also runs scenario analysis. She spends time with macro analysts and sector specialists to talk about how the market may play out and new opportunities in different sectors. And based on all that information, she produces potential outcomes for fixed income portfolio construction. Both Jeff and Stacy suggest how clients should approach investing in today's market landscape, diversification in fixed income, and how treasuries are attractive at this point in time. Jeff and Stacy also field questions from the live audience, and please note you will hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates.
1: 2022 was a very different year than 2023 in the fixed income markets. I think our audience would agree with that today. Jeff, perhaps take us through what's happened so far in the market year to date and where we stand currently today.
2: Yeah, so I want to level set. Mark Smale said interest rates might be 10%, they're not, okay. <laughs> <laughs> much lower, so there's a few things. So uh, we've actually reset interest rates much higher. So this 2023 is actually a pretty nice starting point for interest rates, kind of at the 20-year sort of wides for rates. This is where we've been, and also, like Mark said, for a guy who says he doesn't know anything about macro, he seemed to have a lot of good ideas about macro. Um, it, we think that peak inflation was October as well of 2022, and we think we're, you know it's on the decline. Maybe not as fast in the U.S. as in Canada, but certainly that's the kind of you know starting spot right now. So this is a a period where, you know, I've said before, if you don't like bonds now, you just don't like bonds. Mm -hmm.
1: So you just mentioned that inflation has peaked, you think October 2022. What's the expectation going forward then?
2: Yeah, so like, uh, you know, I think that the expectation for inflation is to get to around sub four by Christmas, right? We'll see how it goes. The CPI we just had two days ago, it was two days ago or yesterday, I can't even remember, I flew. the, the CPI came out and showed signs that we've turned over in the U.S. So we've been on this green run. If you think about the ski slopes here in, uh, in, in British Columbia, green run, blue run, black run. We've been on a green run lower in inflation. So goods has rolled over, commodities have rolled over. But really stickiness in rents and wages, there's some signs now that rents are starting to roll as well. right? And if that's the case, the U.S. will get on the blue run, which is to say, inflation starts to really step down in the coming months. So I think your expectation here should be that we're about to change in CPI to a much more sort of slopey down uh, number.
1: Of course. And higher rates, yields, what does that mean for fixed income investors going forward? I know we're gonna dive into this, but-
2: You know, you are know, you know, gonna hear from Stacy in a few minutes, but this is a, yeah, a very good setup for bonds, very good setup for bonds. And basically the bond market, if nothing happens, You know, we can put together portfolios that yield comfortably 6% without putting our back into it and doing anything crazy. And if rates fall, like we kind of think they might, and if CPI falls faster, and like Mark said, if something breaks again and the Fed's broken a few things already, you can easily imagine a world where the bond market is giddy up.
3: And I was going to add to that, we we see the same thing when when I'm looking at the quantitative models. So we have a proprietary risk model, which is 5,000 simulations, and if I'm just looking at the numbers, looking at the simulations, um, what we see now um, is a a 20% chance of a, a negative return. And back, because yields are so high. So back before when the Fed was um, starting to hike, that was close to 50%. So that's come down dramatically. And looking at the upside, uh, what we were seeing before the um, Fed started hiking was um, return probabilities um, above uh, touching, if I'm looking in the next quarter. So our models forecast Uh, one quarter out in expected returns. And so to get a a quarter where we're on pace for a return of uh, greater than 10% in the fixed income market, we are now um, much, much higher. And so we're looking at a 40% chance of return, which is up from 10% when it was back
1: when yields were much lower um, in uh, the beginning of 21. So we have a 20% chance of a negative return, but a 40% chance of double digits. Those are pretty good odds, I would say. Um, So Stacey, it's your debut appearance at Focus, welcome. We're very happy to have you. Um, And we're excited for everyone to get to know you a little bit better. So if you could talk to us a bit about how you work with Jeff and the broader fixed income team.
3: Sure, Um, I'm excited to be here. And hopefully um, my my goal for today is to, help you guys understand that not all quants are squirreled away in an office, uh, crunching numbers. Um, I sit with uh, Jeff and Mike on on the floor, so I'm actively involved in the day-to-day of the management of the portfolios. And um, that's really, uh, I'm trying to bring together the the process. So if you've heard Jeff talk before that we have a five-step investment process. And I come in in the middle of that, in the asset allocation piece. And um, so I'm trying to manage risk, but also look for um, alpha opportunities and ideas of how we could position to capture that alpha that's out there in the market. So, um, for example, I, I do this by running scenario analysis. And you heard Adam Kramer earlier talk about um, how important scenario analysis is to their process. Well, we have the same thing. So I sit um, in the meetings with the, um, the, the macro analysts and I hear their ideas on, on how they think the market is going to play out. I sit in the uh, sector uh, specialist meeting where they talk about um, the, the value opportunities within their sector. And I put this all together to come up with uh, scenarios and expected returns and how those uh, potential outcomes look for our portfolio construction. And this uh, this, this, I bring to Jeff and Mike, and, and, and we discuss, and we don't always agree, um, but it, it's a diversity of, of thought that we're bringing in. I'm coming from the numbers side. I'm, I'm aware that you know, history doesn't always play out and quants don't always get it right. Um, but it's uh, part of what I add to the process to help um, the portfolios be robustly
1: positioned going forward. So it's probably not the knife fight that Mark has with his, his <laughs> internal colleagues. It doesn't
2: seem that violent, no. No, okay, oh, no. great.
1: Um, but Jeff, question for you. Mark actually just referenced, you know, he thinks that inflation is peaked. He thinks that the Fed is going to cut rates. I know a question on all of our advisors' minds here in the audience as well as online is what's next for the Fed?
2: Well, that, so what's next for the Fed is I would I think they want to cut rates in the worst way, maybe not like all the way to like 2% or something like that, but they would like to cut if they can, because I think the Fed recognizes that by raising rates so quickly, they have broken a few sectors, regional banks comes to mind, even commercial real estate to some extent, okay? Mm -hmm. So those things are kind of got broken and they might break a few other things along the way. And so I think the Fed would like to cut. Mm -hmm. Having said that, if we're on the green run here, you just don't have any room to cut, but you have room to stop raising rates. So my expectation, is that the Fed has stopped raising rates, and it's kind of like the bank can It's gonna sit on its hands as much as it can and hope we get on that blue run ski slope soon. And if they do, that'll open up a lot of opportunity for them and a lot of optionality for the Fed, okay? But for the here and now, they gotta sit and wait.
1: So probability of them raising?
2: I think the probability of them raising rates is extraordinarily low. I think that unless, you know, somehow we're getting back on the chairlift, which would be, by the way, devastating for risk assets. Like, I can't even imagine at that point. That's, that's the super hard landing that's nasty. Mm-hmm. That's not our base case or even you know, our, our thought process, other than what Stacy said. You know, the models clearly say, yeah, you, know, you have a 20% chance that you might have to get back in this chairlift here. And so we're watching for that. And one of the things we've done in our portfolio to make it flexible is we've left ourselves with a lot of liquidity so we can move up and down. Our risk exposure to interest rates. Just in case, the 20% is the the win. We got to move quick.
1: Excellent. And if we, if you know, our investors here haven't entered the fixed income space yet, is this an attractive entry point?
2: Right. This it, it, is a very attractive entry point. You, you're looking at 10-year yields. Sort of calling three and a half percent in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is is still committed to two percent inflation. It means real rates of one and a half. That makes a lot of sense to me as a is you know where rates can. Uh, where rates should be. And then we can go buy a lot of corporate bonds, we can buy, like Adam and his team, we can go buy bank loans, we can buy emerging markets if we want. And so we've been able to get a nice comfortable yield of north of 6% in the portfolio. And that seems about a a winning spot. You know, it leaves the portfolio loads of flexibility in case something goes bump in the night. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as a client, you're compounding at a very nice level, especially versus the last three, five, and 10 years where we've had so much financial repression.
1: Absolutely. Stacy. looking to you, um, asking this for our investors here today and advisors, how do you suggest that clients approach investing right now with so much uncertainty?
3: So as you heard from, from Jeff and, and throughout the sessions this morning, yields are, are, are at their peaks that they've been since the, the GFC. And, and obviously being a quant, I, I look back at the numbers and I see, well, if I look back to Uh, 2000, and I look at peaks and yields, what happened in the the subsequent uh, fixed income markets subsequently? And what we can see uh, from looking back in history is that's a great time to invest because um, the US uh, credit markets had a double-digit return over the next three and, and, and five years following those peaks. So, I know things are uncertain, but the, the, the yield that you're getting provides a nice
1: cushion um, for, for, for the
3: entry point. Perfect. And
1: so we know last year that correlations between equities, fixed income, actually were positive. Is diversification back for fixed income year to date? Absolutely. Go so <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> So I can look at this in two ways. I can give you like the geeky
3: quant numbers um, from, you know, I'm looking at correlations between the the 10-year yields and uh, US uh, corporate spreads, which is the risk piece of um, fixed income uh, credit, uh, corporate credits. And um, over the course of last year, you could see that as the Fed were raising rates, um, you could see that they were positively correlated. So there was no diversification there. I can also um, look at it from a more simplistic perspective. You can see it um, very simply just in this year. When you're looking at um, the days when the S&P, for example, has gone down more than 50 basis points and the last 10 times that has happened, uh, right now we're 10 for 10 in that the US 10 year treasury has had positive returns. So that negative correlation where the S&P is going down, but you're getting positive returns from U.S. Treasuries
1: is, is back. Excellent. Jeff, you had just mentioned that 6% was about what uh, the mandates are looking at. Can you just talk to the audience about what you're attributing to the success? Where are you seeing this alpha being generated from?
2: Yeah, so um, we're seeing a lot of total return. We've, we've had a really good run, like in terms of relative to bench, the benchmark itself has sort of had a return of 6-7% in the last six months, just to give you a sense that this isn't just started. The trend is is here and it's now, because the Fed's more done than not. Um, where we're adding a lot of uh, value right now, we're buying treasuries. We can get into that in a second. We like to buy the, the bullet, so that's the steepener yield curve story. We think that could be a big, big win in the next 12 months, and I can let Stacy walk you through all the math if you want, but to my mind, that could be the double-digit return just there in the steepener, okay? In addition to that, you know, we still like things like bank loans, which is floating rate notes. In, in the US, they're yielding 10.5%. Uh, they're hard now, because and, you know, I was talking to Mark about this before, is that the problem with the, that 10.5% yield, you have to buy a bunch of stuff at 9% or 14%. And the 14% is terrifying, because it's triple C. It's like in trouble. We got almost 7.5% of the bank loan markets triple C. So you're trying to stay away from that. We are, because that's not our place and buy the bank loans that you know have sort of a, a future and are going to pay off comfortably and get that 9%. But those kind of areas are where we're looking. Where we're not going, not really going into emerging markets here, just we don't think that's a win in general. A few bulleted ideas are there. And then global, we're kind of pulled back from global sum, global credit, sort mm-hmm. of think about continental Europe, right, so, you know, the Bundes curve and so forth, and then credit there. We just think that that could be a harder landing than the US.
1: Anything to add, Stacey, from your perspective? Yeah,
3: so I, I think that um, I, I agree with you in, in terms of the EM side of things. It's a, a little bit uh, that uncertain in terms of the outcomes. Um, but I also think that, you know, looking at the recession, and, and that's what everyone's um, talking about right now, um, the chances, uh, if, if we're informing from, from history, um, and we're looking for a signal for a recession, um, typically uh, the previous recessions have been followed by an inversion of the yield curve in the uh, three month 10 year space. And um, when that inversion remains for three months, um, it's 100% that a recession follows. So we hit that period back in uh, February. So, we're thinking um, that maybe a recession is imminent. Um, Typically, after that signal, recession has followed in half a year, with the longest uh, historically being in in one and a half years. But as you've heard before, um, you know, everyone is looking at this signal because it's been so good. So, maybe it it doesn't um, end up that way. And um, so, that's one of the inputs that I'm putting um, into my uh, scenarios. And I think we had a slide. Do we have a slide on
1: um, the yield curve side of things?
3: I believe we do to
1: show the impact of the recession yet. Yeah, cycle since 1973, right here.
3: Okay, yeah, so this is, uh, this is the slide that we are looking at. Um, and so here uh, you can see the, the yield curve and you've got yield on your, your y-axis and mat- maturity a- along the bottom here. Um, You can see the blue line, which is the current yield curve, and and the green line is is what we're implying from the numbers um, from historical recessions. So you can see this uh, ball steepener as it comes from your um, blue line snapping back down into your green line. And um, that's uh, why we, we like treasuries right now and why we like to be bulleted. In, in the middle of the curve, because when I'm feeding this into the scenario analysis, into the, the models, it's when that snap uh, back happens, uh, when you're getting a real positive return from the US treasuries.
1: Excellent, so we can fold that into your five mandates, Jeff. Yeah. So I believe we also have a slide on this just showing the, uh, the various mandates you do manage for us. So speak to us about how are they similar? How are they different? If our advisors were looking to choose one for their investors' portfolio, what would be the differentiating factors?
2: Okay, well, there's really only three mandates. And, sure. and you know we really have a mandate as has a mutual fund ETF, mutual fund ETF, and then just the mutual fund. So investment grade total bond and global investment grade ETF, they're the same, okay? We just launched them at a time when you couldn't commingle the ETF and the mutual fund. We have both of them. We try to manage them the same, pretty much the same. And I would be disappointed over time if the rolling three-year numbers were much different. Okay? So those two go together. Those are our most diversified products. Those are your best diversification versus the S&P 500. They're gonna have a correlation. The S&P 500 is called 0.3. You know, It's gonna be a lot lower beta. And it's actually the products that if you're really looking for diversification, that's what you want in your portfolio. Multi-sector bond and Global Core Plus ETF, they have a little bit more correlation in the stock market, it's called 0.4 not a lot more, and they have a lot more yield and a lot more opportunity set. And so if you have a rolling three-year period, multi-sector and Global Core Plus will definitely lap the other two, right? Um, and I have this joke about secretary and Clyde's deals we'll get into in a second. And then tactical credit is sort of for folks who say, I would really like to buy high yield and bank loans, but I just don't want to do it myself. And so what we, this is is diversified credit. And so we diversify the credit to go after the fact that we could get into a default wave here. And if you do, the more diversification in your credit, the better.
1: So you just mentioned defaults, which is great, because we have a question that's come in from our online audience. With the economy slowing, should we be concerned about defaults?
2: Well, defaults are always a factor. So the way I look at it, for investment grade, not so much, right? I know that there's SVB and there's some of the regional banks, you know, watch that piece. But in general, defaults, investment grade are going to be very low. So defaults are gonna happen in high yield and bank loans. That always happens. Even in the good years, defaults are two or 3%. I think defaults will rise probably that six, seven, maybe 8% uh, piece. If you're in bank loans getting 10.5% yield, you're gonna outrun those defaults because you're getting a percent a month, right? And then then you get recoveries and defaults. So bank loans in our mind will outrun their defaults. High yield's a little bit more tricky because there's some thematic sector ideas in, in high yield. And so what we've done is we said, let's stay away from real estate for now. Mm-hmm. You can go back in later. There's no reason. We're not Mark, right? There's no doubles and triples here. We're trying to get your money back. So we'll be a little bit later to the game than, my, than Mark. Um, but we will. Um, we think high, uh, real estate looks a little bit rough. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the regional banks are not a buy, in my personal view, and probably never will be, right? I wouldn't bottom feed here or tr- trust because most of them will go away still. Pac-Man's after them.
1: Excellent. Let's move into a bit of a rapid fire section here, if you will, talk about your positioning. So we'll try to keep this moving. And please also feel free to submit questions for Jeff and Stacy. They're here to answer any you may have. Um, but favorite sectors that you're thinking of currently? Stacy, Jeff, I'll let either start. I like the belly,
3: like the middle of the, the treasury curve. I think that has uh, really good probabilities when I'm looking at it from the numbers side of things um, going forward. and you know, right now, um, corporate bonds, uh, I, I just don't think you're getting paid enough for that risk that you have. Perfect. Jeff, how are you thinking
1: about duration?
2: So yeah, we like, to, like you said, we like the belly and it's all the quant work that Stacy's done. So we like the belly and in fact, the portfolios today are as risk, little risk as possible on, on a high yield and bank loans. We're, we're down to sort of 20%-ish, even in the aggressive products, okay? We, this portfolio is almost now, almost 50% in treasuries, mostly in the bo- the belly, sevens and tens. This portfolio is designed to win. If that yield curve moves, like Stacy said, that's a double digit return and we want to go grab it. And so what we're not doing is buying a lot of bank loans and high yield, even though they can outrun things, mm-hmm. we, we're leaving all those sort of risk buckets wide open so that if we get a hard landing and if something really goes bump in the night, we have a glorious opportunity for the portfolios.
1: Flexibility is key right now, yep, absolutely. Yep, yep. Stacey, I'm gonna throw back to you since you just touched on favorite sectors, perhaps ones you're avoiding. We heard EM, Uh, any other areas? So I really don't like uh, lower down in the tranches of like CLOs,
3: for example. We're very high quality, we're in the AAA in in CLOs. And we have, um, in the lower tranches, I should say, there's a lot of non-linear potential for, Price uh, depreciation there. They're thin tranches, so you can be exposed if there's um, losses in in the CLO, the diversified loan basket, and so that's why we're staying at the the top of that uh, tranche in, in the CLOs there. So we don't we have the most protection, and uh, we don't have that um, potential
1: downside from the lower down in the um, tranches there. Currency. How do you, you know how do you actively manage it? And also, are we currency neutral, hedged, you unhedged, where still, are you at?
2: Still hedged. Currency neutral is still my favorite way to go, just because the volatility of our portfolio is gonna be three to six percent. The vol of Canada US dollars ten. So if you make a mistake in the FX, we're not doing enough to bail you out of that. Okay, so if you you know happen to have US dollar needs, like you have real estate in Florida or real estate in, in Arizona, go grab the currency, the unhedged. But we want you hedged back into Canadian dollars because that's what we're running this for and we're trying to size our vol that way. When it comes to currencies though, I think the big dollar looks great still. Uh, It's hard for me to get excited about the Canadian dollar in general. Maybe there's a handful of pennies that can do better versus the big dollar. Um, I think the yen can do a lot better versus the US dollar. We got the Bank Bank of Japan Governors new. And there's, uh, if you saw Bank of Japan just said they're not giving any guidance at all starting in a couple of days, which usually means they want to do shock and awe for the market. Don't know what that means. That could be really good for the yen. Um, the euro at the 110, I kind of I'm I'm out now at, at 100. I like the euro. I just don't think euro is going to get back to its traditional 120, 130. There's too many things broken in Europe, and this could be a long slog for the Europeans.
1: That's fair. Um, Let's pivot onto a question we have from our audience here in-house. How do debt ceiling's concern influence your portfolio positioning, if at all? So I
3: think uh, with the concerns around the debt ceiling, I don't think the the US is going to default, but I think it adds more merit to our overweight Treasury position. Um, If that was to happen, I I think it would be a a risk-off event, which means Treasury bonds would rally and um, so that's uh, giving more um, influence to our, more credibility to our uh,
1: position currently. Excellent. Jeff, you've mentioned in the past that this is the anti-08 in terms of credit. So what do you mean by that? Perhaps explain that for everyone watching.
2: Right, I think there's this notion that, okay, rates have gone up like they did in 06, 07, under chair Greenspan, and we're gonna have this big crash in 08 that takes down real estate. And remember, U.S. real estate, and housing in particular, retail housing, is supported now more than ever by Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny. In 2008, only 60% of Americans had fixed-rate mortgages. The rest were floating. A lot were non-conforming. Some didn't have any docs. It was kind of ugly stuff, right? And that led to a banking crisis in the U.S. And because there was these other three-letter words, um, it led to a banking crisis in other countries as well. Fast forward to today. This is the anti-08 because almost 98% of Americans have fixed rate mortgages, mostly for 30 years still. And I tell the story of my trader, Alex, who has a 2 and 7 8 for 30 years. 2 and 7 8 And so now interest rates are higher than that. So he can actually defease his mortgage from the US government. So he's just had an equity injection. So this is the anti-08 for Americans. Now, I will say for Canadians, uh, the Brits, uh, Netherlands, the Germans, the, Sw- uh, the Swedes, who have uh, fixed uh, more arms. This is not the anti anteoate. For that group, this group, and, and, and we all live it here in, in Vancouver in the area, if you have a, a floating rate note or a fixed rate mortgage that's creeping towards floating, you're not looking really excited right now. And so this is the anti anti-weight for the US, and that's why I think the US dollar could be very supported here, even if you think that you know, rates stay at these levels for higher because the average American household hasn't noticed anything because their mortgage has got 18 more years to go at two and seven eighths.
1: That makes sense, absolutely. Um, Stacy, if you can touch on some broader themes, so you're keeping an eye on what that will impact us over the next decade or longer? So I
3: look at everything. Like I try to do scenario analysis. That you must be really busy if you look at everything. There's always something to do. And, you know, and then
2: she sends it at 2 a.m. and then scares the tar out of Mike and I.
1: That's great though. You need someone keeping an eye on
3: things.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: continue. So I look
3: at the um, try and look at the envelope of, of, of returns. So like, under what scenario um, could this happen? And, and you know, what the expected returns if you're considering everything. And, you know, then we kind of drill down as to which ones are more likely. Um, but, you know, sometimes um, in the financial markets, y- you don't anticipate everything. Who thought they were going to work from home for two years uh, in in COVID? Like, sure. we, we can't predict everything. Quants can't predict everything. So, Even the ones that we don't think are likely, we still look at and we still check our sensitivities um, to those outcomes so we can understand how the portfolio is is going to behave. And, you know, we're not saying that any of these scenarios will come true. For example, um, last year, one of the scenarios we um, assigned more merit to was the taper tantrum. Because we knew the Fed were, was going to raise rates. And the last time um, when the, the that meant that the there was more correlation or more um, co-movement between rates and uh, equity. And that was the last time that we saw them positively correlated. And what we ended up getting was, was not just a, a taper tantrum, uh, but the taper tantrum on steroids. So, it was great that we really understood the sensitivities of the portfolio in that situation because what ended up happening was m- way more than we, uh, when th- than I modeled at that time. So that's why we, we look at everything, and um, I try to be humble about it when I'm looking at everything and, and not think that I have all the answers when, when I don't.
2: That was really important to us to take for tantrum one because... Uh, if you look at a lot of our competitors, they like to do risk parities, which is they buy a lot of 30-year treasuries or 30-year government candidates and load up on risk and say, those will be negatively correlated, except in a taper tantrum, when they're positively correlated and used to have double losses. Mm. And that's really affected a lot of our bigger competitors, especially in the US, who make, you know, make a living on, on risk parity. And I think that's a problem, because now you end up going from morning star, five stars like we are, to one star, or two stars, and they have almost no way to catch up
1: hmm That's a dramatic change. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we have another question from the audience here. Do you think the U.S. is going to lose its reserve currency status? This is a very hot topic these no. days. No, <laughs> no is the
2: not answer. in our lifetimes. First of all, someone else has to pick up status. So which, who do you think is going to be if it's not the U.S.? And I say the second thing, this is really hard and you listen to Mark, right? Where is all the AI things that are really exciting happening? San Francisco, California. U.S. is pulling ahead of the planet again, right? It's surging again. I know it's gonna piss off most of the planet. Canada and U.S. are doing very well. But I look at China, we look at demographics. China's demographics are terrible. China's um, ability at this stage to generate any sort of new tech itself is really low. And, and in fact, when there's actively discouraging people who become very successful in China, this, this, is, a pro- this is a problem. Japan's population is in decline, the G10 population decline. Right, that's terrible. We haven't seen that in like 300 years. U.S. and Canada still in population growth, so we're the winners, relative. Um, and then the other thing you need to be uh, uh, a reserve currency, you need common law, Canada U.S. You also need the the, the fact that you don't have capital controls. And in 2016, President Xi had a chance to make the renminbi part of that. And when you put capital controls on, because remember, they the, 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 uh, the round B started to really, um, to, 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 to get hit, um, he made a choice and he actively took China out of the, the game to be a reserve currency because part of the rule of being a reserve currency is when I want my dough back, I get it back, no questions asked, same day.
1: Absolutely. That's
2: the reserve currency. <laughs> it's
1: a necessity, really. Yes, they are. There you go. Um, given the regional bank issues recently, are Canadian banks at risk?
2: Stacey, Jeff. I don't think so, not, not <laughs> per se. Canada's already where the US is heading. So Canada's got the big six or seven, the SIFIs, too big to fails. Um, if you think about the regional bank problem in the US, there's no, there's no um, banking crisis in the United States. What you have is by mistake, and in, in government's trying to fix things, and regulators trying to fix 08, and we had the Basel Accords and stuff like that. We actually created two tiers of banks. The SIFIs, banks. And then this other group, let's call them inferior banks. And we know what happens to anything that's an inferior good. It goes away. And the problem you have in a regional bank is they don't have a get out of jail free card like the SIFIs do. And that's the problem in a world of that. And so that's the problem in the U.S. And so unfortunately for the U.S., it's going to look sooner or later like Canada. A handful of big, too big to fails, um, GSIBs, whatever you want to call them, SIFIs. And then, you know, the regional banks will either have to get bigger and become that SIFI themselves, or go to become a community bank, sort of under the 50 billion um, number.
1: Excellent. So we're going to see some transition over the next couple of years happen oh, in that space. Oh, it's going to be
2: faster than that. By the, All this summer, it's oh. going to be Pac-Man on going, regional banks either going down or getting merged.
1: So three months.
2: It won't be long.
1: You're going to hear it here for
2: Spokes. No, the problem you have, right, is why do companies exist? for shareholders, right? Mm-hmm. Like these aren't governments, right? They exist for shareholders. And if you don't have enough NIM or enough story to get Mark or somebody in the value group to give a darn, then the company doesn't live. And this is where the regional banks are. Their NIM has been crushed. Now now nobody's going to a regional bank for a bank line, right? Can you imagine you go to the regional bank and you had a bank line, you tell your board I have a bank line from regional bank X, your board goes, how about you get a SIFI bank line, right? Yeah. And so immediately your opportunity set falls. Regional banks are sort of 80% of um, CRE lending in the US. CREs under pressure. This game's gonna be over really fast.
1: Anything to add from your perspective, Stacy? I, I agree with Jeff. I, I don't know if there's anything more to, to okay. say on that. Great, no problem. Um, so you've spoken about you've spoken in the past at several of these events, the importance of your investment process being understood by not only our advisors, but the investors. So why is that important to you? Why are the fundamentals so key in understanding the method to your madness?
2: Yeah, so what you're buying from us is our process. That's, that's, the, that's what we're selling to you is our five-step process. We have this amazing team, Obviously, just met Stacey and how amazing she is. It's not just Stacy; We have and's also part of our group as well. Uh, we have Kana, Didi, Heather, and Tom who do macro and know everything about every central bank and are experts on Bank of Japan, PBOC. We spend a lot of time talking about everything that's going on pretty much around the world. The sector group, we have all these great people in the teams. But the, we have the people, but they all know their job and they're the experts in their job. And the five-step process has worked for over 20 years, and it's been refined constantly, and it's generated five-star ratings. Our eVest Alliance are at the top of the list. Where we are now, I feel so excited about where, you know, the performance of the portfolios versus peers and index. That's what you're buying, and that's the process.
1: Perfect. Stacy. if our advisors here were, you know, to keep an eye on things to look forward in the fixed income markets for the next remainder of the year, if you will, what are things that you're keeping an eye on? What are you looking at for the remainder?
3: So you know, as as Jeff mentioned, um, a lot of the uh, the talk has been on inflation and if we're rolling over in inflation and the Fed um, if they're going to raise rates again. And and so right now it looks like we're getting to a peak. So the question it becomes um, not how high are they going to go, but for for how long. And so that influences uh, the decisions that we make. If we anticipate, so if I do my scenario analysis and I say, well, rates are gonna come down tomorrow, that impacts uh, the outcomes very dramatically as if I do it so that the rates come down a year from now, for example. So that's some of the things that I'm uh, really paying attention to and, and, and looking at the potential outcomes because you know, if, you're, if you own floating rate bonds and then yields come down, you, you, you know, that's gonna be a, a big difference and you've got that reinvestment risk that's um, cropping up um, if you are not long enough in duration, if you don't have um,
1: that fixed rate um, in your portfolios. Excellent. We have one minute left, I'm being told. So, any parting thoughts? Jeff, we'll start with you.
2: Well, um, yeah, so I think the bond market's in great space. Like I said, this is as good a market and good a setup as I've seen in a long time, and there's a lot of ways to win. We've taken our portfolio. We think that the most likely way to win, in our mind, is the, is the, the yield curve play. Uh, call for the end of the Fed, at least raising rates. And then be careful. I think one thing that um, Stacy said is really important. If you buy bonds that are too short right now, the problem is the U.S. overnight's at five and a quarter, the two year's at 4%. The four, a two year bond in two years is cash, right? So that bond has to equalize over time, which means the price has to fall. So the very, very front end is not safe. You had to win and win fast. And if you're using derivatives right now, that's trouble. Because remember what you do when you receive in a future, you buy the two or four-year part of the curve, you pay fixed. You're underwater and you're bleeding every day. So that's why we've picked that five to ten-year part of the curve, to get away from the Fed because it could take a while.
1: Excellent. Stacy. I,
3: I think that we, we've... Hopefully, got the message across by by now that uh, fixed income is in a good spot, and um, the do- diversification um, to equity is 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 back. And so, I'm excited to see uh, what returns pan out over the the course of the next year.
1: Excellent, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Stacy, you're welcome back anytime. Thank, Thank you, you. you for being here. With that, Jeff and Stacy, everyone.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.